Hello, and welcome to the Pharma Forum podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock, Editor-in-Chief at Pharma Forum. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Jones-McMeans, who is the Divisional Vice President of Global Clinical Affairs for Abbott's Vascular Business. We are going to talk about a really important uh, conversation topic today. We've been talking a lot uh, recently in various episodes of the show about clinical trials, about some of the ways that clinical trials are changing and transforming in the wake of COVID-19. And today we're going to focus on one particular uh, really important part of that conversation, which is diversity and equity in clinical trials. Um, The industry has been in a bit of a reckoning lately about the nature of most trials and and how they do or don't reflect the populations that they're meant to be um, creating therapies for. Um, And obviously that's a really important thing to be, to be thinking about. Um, And so I'm, I'm really happy to have you on the show to talk about it. Welcome. Thank you. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here today, Jonah. So before we get into it, tell me a little bit about um, your your role at Abbott and the work that you do. Well, I am the Divisional Vice President of Global Clinical Affairs for Abbott's vascular business. And basically what that means is that we have a pretty large clinical trial portfolio for that supports our cardiovascular medical devices. And so these devices within our vascular division are anything from drug-looting stents that go in the heart uh, to as well as um, new technologies that uh, treat lower limb peripheral artery disease, as well as peripheral artery disease that may be in the neck, like the carotid arteries. Uh, We have many other devices, such as wires and balloons that are accessories that go with many of these um, life-saving technologies that support patients with vascular disease. And so as these um, products that we are developing, uh, they must go through clinical trials. They must go through a rigor of being evaluated within patients to ensure their safety and efficacy. And we work with the Food and Drug Administration uh, as one of the biggest regulators in the United States, or the only, I should say, as well as other regulators outside of the U.S. to ensure that um, the trials are appropriately evaluating what they're meant to do, but that our patients are safe. And so they're really part of that continuum that you see with product development where there's rigorous testing on the front end on the R&D perspective, and then it gets to um, the clinical trial stage, which we oversee and govern, and then moves on to the regulatory and approval stages. Uh, So that's the work that um, my uh, organization that I run um, conducts, and uh, you know we're working day and night pretty much to make sure these products um, are well intended for the public. So you're kind of on the medical device side. We are, yes. So vascular is all is all med devices and uh, Abbott has a pretty large med device um, organization where I should say division with um, multiple business units within and vascular being one of them. But from a process standpoint, um, when it comes to trials, when it comes to regulation, that kind of thing, um, it's not that different than than the process with pharmaceuticals, right? Um, I would say, well, I would say there's similarities, but um, they, you know, pharmaceuticals follow an IND process with the Food and Drug Administration, where we follow an IDE process with many of our medical devices that within vascular is there is a drug device combination 
So we work with a special division of the Food and Drug Administration or the FDA called CEDAR that looks at both, you know, the medical devices as it's, you know, being used and implanted in the body, but also the potential release of drug that many of our devices do have. Great. It's a good qualification for our audience who might be expecting to hear, you know, one thing. So, um, yeah. so, so tell me a little bit about from, from your perspective, um, in the, t- the time, in the time that you've been at Abbott and, and working in the industry more broadly, um, how have you seen this kind of trend progress with, um, kind of this awareness and, and attempts to kind of make, make changes about, um, making clinical trials sort of populations more representative? Yeah, a great question. Um, you know, with Abbott, we definitely recognize that diversity and inclusion in clinical trials is really an essential piece when you're conducting trials, and that you we want to ensure that the patients that are being evaluated uh, in our trials for a specific uh, treatment therapy with a met with one of our medical devices uh, to treat a disease are really representative of those that are burdened by the disease. So we don't want it to be skewed to one population. And so I, I've been with Abbott for 15 years. And, and prior to that, um, I've, I was conducting um, clinical trial research uh, as a postdoctoral fellow at University of Texas Southwestern. And I think through the years of the work that I've done, I've seen that there, you know, the disparities in healthcare have always been there. But what's been the challenge, I think, across research in general, not specific to one company or one industry, is that there's been a struggle or a challenge to um, include those patients that are most burdened by the disease. So women and people of color, and especially when you think of the cardiovascular disease space, we know that people of color really stand out on having some of the highest prevalences of either diagnosis or mortality associated with cardiovascular, or I should say vascular disease in general, metabolic syndrome, all of which come together to create a very challenging um, situation for um, patients and and basically their ability to live well. And so as we have entered into 2020, I would say, where it was very difficult with the pandemic, there was a, um, I want to say, a very good level of awareness raising that occurred, you know, partly due to COVID and some other main issues that, you know, societal issues that occurred uh, during that time in which we recognize, I think more people recognize that this disparity can't continue. And what do we need to do to pivot? And I will have to say that the FDA has done a very good job. They were, they've been for years, uh, since their 1998 demographic rule, where they said, okay, hey, researchers, we need you to report on you know, what the gender, the age, the ethnicity is of the patients who are in your trials, they've been asking for this type of work to be done. And at Abbott, you know, we, we just, we've stepped up and we're committed to, you know, evolve even more in the research that we do. So just to go back a minute, why is it that, what are, what are some of the reasons that this diversity just hasn't been happening? I mean, I know that there are things about the way that clinical trial um, candidates are identified and, and people are found that sometimes kind of systemic things, right, where where you're you're looking in, in pools of people that maybe don't match the, the groups that you really need to have. But I'd love to hear a little more about sort of how that happens. And just to, to set the stage so we can talk a little more about solutions. Yes. So... What we have seen, and I said from from our perspective, and and there's research to back this up, that there are some four main 
um, barriers. And I think what we have to understand is when I mentioned these barriers, these barriers are really kind of nested in uh, social determinants of health, which really do impact uh, how we live, where we live, the education we receive, you know, the healthcare we receive, the food that we eat, all those are impacting us as a society. But when you look at the four main barriers that are impacting um, patients and specifically uh, patients of color and women, it's really trust, the lack of trust, lack of awareness. There can be a lack of understanding and a lack of common language. So the approach that Abbott has taken is saying, okay, well, how do we actually impact or, or really kind of tackle these barriers? And so uh, with the lack of trust piece, what we identified was that we needed to do continuous and um, I would say continuous and, and intentional work around um, ensuring that the physicians that were becoming investigators that were a part of our trials were diverse and they were um, representing women and they were uh, people of color or if, or maybe if they didn't fit that demographic, was there an investment in that population of people, you know, in that community? And so, you know, we, there, there's research to show that patients, when they feel like they're seen by um, their practitioner or the, or the medical staff, or they look like the medical staff, uh, that there's a connection and a witnessing that can occur that makes people feel more trusted and their, their ability to, you know, access the healthcare they need, or I should say simply, um, you know, possibly participate in that clinical trial. And so in one of our clinical trials, like PTK, we were very intentional on which um, we have been, you know, really benefited from some amazing female vascular surgeons. Uh, we have one female in San Antonio who's also a Latina who has focused on her, the community um, that she's focused on is the Latino community, which uh, in San Antonio, a specific, based on specific zip codes, did not have access to good health care. She put her clinics in that health care and is committed to that community. So that's one example of, you know, where we extended and again, we're intentional to bring in a uh, new group of investigators and train them appropriately to be, to participate in clinical trials. I would also say though, that there is the lack of awareness um, on the part of, you know, patients just may not know in their day-to-day -day life of kind of what is a clinical trial and how is it that it could potentially help me or my community. Maybe, you know, in the immediacy, because we're evaluating the, the, the medical device, maybe I can't see the immediate change because we're studying it, but maybe for future state, you know, it's going to help me and my community. And so uh, one thing that we have found very helpful is that people, patients needed some uh, single source of information that they could access. So we developed a website specifically for this one trial called LifePTK, in which it just spoke to simple facts of what is your disease of peripheral artery disease and, and uh, critical ischemia? How is it that, you know, what treatment options do you have? What a clinical trial is? And what is this one clinical trial that you're telling me about? So that patients and family could have that access. But we also did that with some very basic materials like pamphlets, flyers, just educational materials, because what we were finding was that patients many times either if they were with their family or they weren't able to be with their family at the time because of COVID, so they were limited to who could come, they needed to be able to go back and have this discussion about, is this an option for me? Because that 
that contact with the physician sometimes can be limited. So there needs to be a process where they can go back and say, hmm, let me chew on this. Let me think about it. Is it something that I'm okay with? And, and something we made it, made, made it more visible as far as the people that we had on the websites and we did a video as well were people they could relate to that actually looked like them. And so we felt that was an important element. And, you know, I would say also just this general um, identification of access, we needed to provide resources. So we allowed, we started with a home, um, home health visit process where patients could be seen at home because it was very hard for certain patients to get back and forth to the clinic, especially the more diseased they are. Uh, we also provided transportation services as well. So that's hitting that access point, as well as the level of awareness um, and having the single source of information. And then I would say, you know, uh, lack of common language. And so that's when you bring um, investigators who are from that community to help with that common, langu common language and understanding. And something within another clinical trial we found was that centers needed, um, some of the smaller centers, they needed translation services. So we made it um, part of, you know, kind of this design that all the sites will have, if they need it, they will have translation services because we can't have patients miss because of language barriers. It's just, you know, that creates that inequity that we see. So it sounds like that was a really interesting and kind of thorough explanation because there's so many little pieces to it. It's not just let's sign up, you know, more people, uh, you know, different kinds of people, but it's really changing everything about your culture and your processes to make it more transparent, more accessible to those, to those folks, kind of bring the trial to where they are, right? Yes. And yeah. Yeah. So please, I'm sorry, please go ahead. Did I interrupt your question? <laughs> no, I, I'm just, I, I again, you know, I, I think it's, it's very, very well put. Um, and, and one more piece, this came up in an interview I was doing recently, uh, when we talk about awareness and, and, um, education around clinical trials, you know, even for any group of people, there's a nuance to the idea that a treatment is one, yes, experimental. I mean, yes, it, it's not going, you know, there is a risk that doesn't exist with, uh, with something that's been fully, you know, already through regulators, but at the same time, it's not like, you're not a guinea pig, like it's not super dangerous, but like that nuance is, is something that maybe like, you know, depending on your familiarity with the whole world of, of, you know, the medical world and clinical trials, that can be kind of a hard thing to communicate. And some people might, I guess it's more trust than awareness, but some people might say, no, no, thank you. I don't want to be your, your guinea pig. Um, with a kind of an incomplete understanding of, of the, the risk analysis, I guess, of the clinical trial. I mean, is that a factor? I think you're absolutely correct. And that's why, number one, it's, you have to have the several touch points of how patients are going to get their information you know, having a specific physician population and medical staff population is like imperative that are going to have the conversation. But having the material piece, the touch points for patients from a video to websites to just leave behind, because we know some patients are not going to have access to a website or be able to access the video. So leave behinds, touch points where they can read about these things. And one thing that we have to also help patients understand, when it gets to the level where we're conducting a pivotal clinical trial, so like we're working with the Food and Drug Administration, and that's something that in common language patients aren't like, okay, so the FDA, you know, what, what are they, you know, who are they and what are they doing? But there's such level of oversight in which we've had to do and prove testing prior to even getting into patients. So testing at the animal level, testing on the bench, 
And, you know, and, and so that is, you know, probably a little too much, too more detailed for, for, the, for the patient. But we just may want to say before it ever got to you, it had to meet safety standards. So I didn't just build it and put it in you. It had to be built by the engineers, tested by the engineers, and made sure, is it safe enough now to go on patients? Check, yes, it is. And then, and here we are today. And guess what? I, as a company, am working hand in hand with, um, you know, a large governmental organization that is make, ensuring that we are doing, like we are going to do the right thing, but they're partnering with us to make sure the patients are safe. There are another set of eyes to say, hey, did you think about this, this, and that to make sure the patient is safe? And so it's a collaborative effort and it's never someone just, again, creating the medical device and then making a very haphazard decision to put it in patients. Very right. intentional, very methodical. Yeah. So this whole issue obviously exists in a, in a larger context of, of equity issues in, in the in the and diversity issues in the healthcare system more broadly, and it sounds like some of the things you're talking about, some of the systems that are being created here, also, um, you know, should should apply to to the the world beyond clinical trials, right? To to um, yeah, just standard treatments. Um, so how so you know how does this kind of these efforts fit into larger efforts that the healthcare system is taking to work on these issues? Oh, that's a good question, but I don't know if I'm the one to answer it. I think it's an excellent question, but you know, I think my space that I've been very focused on is clinical trials. Now, granted, clinical trials, um, we said, you know, we are part of the overall healthcare ecosystem. So the work, for example, that we're doing with diversity inclusion in clinical trials, it fits into the work that that you know hospital systems are doing to ensure that all patients are seen, especially that and there's extra effort, extra reach. That is occurring, occurring for the patients that may have the highest disparities. So the patients of color, for women, there has to be extra reach. And it's not just from the clinical trial perspective, but we need the broader partnerships of um, our larger healthcare systems, our larger research institutions that um, participate in this. So from a, one thing I like to ask, and we're, we're coming up on time in five minutes or so, uh, one thing I always like to ask as we come to the end is just, um, how do you, can you take some of the things we've been talking about and translate them to advice for, you know, folks who might be looking to improve on this in their own organization? Well, I will say this. It's important that um, we actually take, take a step back and consider, you know, and, and let's say if you're saying, you know, other research organizations, be it both industry or out of industry, we actually need to look at the data on the trials that we've conducted before. We need to take a hard look and say, what do these demographics look like? And for the disease that I know that I'm evaluating are the populations that I've been treating in the past, are they matching those that are disparate? Okay. And I'm going to say, in a lot of cases, we're going to say probably not. They, they, they are disparate. You know, they're not matching. And I mean, we have many metrics that we can look at. We can you know, for depending on the age population, you can look at CMS, you can look at, um, you know, claims insurance databases to help you understand, like, what the expectation is on the breakdown of women and people of color of who is being treated for these diseases. So that's like the first metric we actually have to look at. And then taking that next step and saying, okay, so I've seen that this is the breakdown of my population ethnically and gender wise. and 
Now I have to figure out what is a plan that I need to approach to help shift the balance. Now, when I say this, I will say this with um, patience. <laughs> this is a marathon and not a sprint. And so the work that we put into this, we may not see the immediate outcome in that first trial. We may move the needle a little, but you may not reach the targets that you may you know, have in mind. And so we have to understand that it's a iterative process that we will be taking. And recently, um, the FDA did come out with a, a new guidance for diversity and inclusion. Um, it's it, to develop diversity and inclusion plans for clinical trials. And they have a like very nicely done um, template of kind of the things you should target and hit. And, you know, and I'll put a plug in for that because it's something that Abbott has looked at as, you know, definitely informative and helpful for the pathway because, you know, this, there's a science to doing DNI. And we need to recognize that and we need to rely on the, you know, validated sources that explain, number one, why the disparities are happening, what approaches we can take to support these populations and, um, you know, and, and, and also giving us a level of expectation of what can be achieved as we go do this work. So, you know, I, I just would encourage that, you know, that, that individuals, if they're starting on this journey, they, they really do have to look at their data and then, you know, look at some metrics to help support, you know, where should I be? And then re relying on, you know, looking at reliable resources of how to do this work because they're out there. Awesome. That's great. Um, one thing I want to touch on, and then I'll ask you for some final thoughts. You mentioned earlier, um, in, I think in your first answer, you mentioned the social determinants of health and, and how that ties in. And so I just want to circle back on that a little bit, because I think, you know, people think, um, you know, this is not just about like, does a, a, a vascular device from Abbott work differently in the body of a person of color or a white person? It's about like, also, the diversity of, of these trials is also important because like you need to know if there's follow-up care that you know does require you know access to something in the community or something so I'd love to hear a little bit about why why that's an important piece I guess I think great question um so when we look at disease models and let's take something very simple like cardiovascular disease and um higher prevalence of cardiovascular mortality among African-Americans like even though we've seen it decrease um, over the years for certain populations, African-Americans still stay with some of the highest rates of mortality. And so you have to ask the question, so how much is, do our genes play a role in that? And we have to under, remember that the Human Genome Project showed us that we were 99.9% .9 similar. So that means, Jonah, you and I, even though phenotypically we look a little different, we look different, that we probably are more genetically similar then maybe if I brought another African-American individual in here. So then I have to ask the question, if my genes are not the primary determinant, knowing that there are some levels of gene association, but knowing that it may not be the primary driver, what is creating disparities such as this with certain populations? And we have to say, we have to look at social determinants of health because remember, social determinants of health mean it's where I live, what education access I have, what community resources I may have my access to food, my access to healthcare, even, you know, like the safety of my environment and my reach to the community, all of these have impact. And, in the, and I'll speak for the United States, we know that these social determinants of health have been interwoven and 
basically racial disparity you know, for many, many years. And so if you have a population, and I don't care who it is, if you have a human that is put in an environment where these social determinants of health create a very negative pressure, because I don't have good access to healthcare, education, food, my living, um, you know, where I live is poor, then my health outcomes from one generation to the next are going to continuously be poor. And it's going to create this level of stress that leads to poor health outcomes. So as researchers, we have to be aware of this because I can create the best device in the world for a disease. But if I am not paying attention to the patient population and what their needs are, their ability to get to and from the clinic, to you know, follow-up visits, taking you know, any follow-up medication, if I can't do that, and if I can't have an awareness of the level and gravity of their disease because of their you know, generational living situation, then it's going to be hard for me to demonstrate success of my trial. So, you know, I think, so as we do this work, we have to be very cognizant of the impact of these social determinants of health and really interweave them in the work we do because they have impact on our outcomes. Yeah, that's so important. So I'm glad we, we kind of got into that a little bit. So any final thoughts um, or anything that you think we haven't talked about yet that's really important to the discussion? No, I just think it's great that we're having the discussion because, again, you know, this is the work that Abbott's committed to, but we also recognize that we need the commitment of so many other industry, you know, sponsors, as well as, you know, academic researchers and healthcare systems. And so it really doesn't become like my work, your work. It's, a, it's all of our work. And like I said, we're nested in the overall healthcare ecosystem. So we must, you know, you know, as we pivot, the healthcare system has to pivot as well. Awesome. Thanks so much. Um, it's, it's been just a pleasure chatting with you, Jennifer. And um, yeah, hope, hope we can have you on the show again sometime. Thank you. This is great. I appreciate your time. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and to follow us on Twitter at at Pharma Forum. Thanks for listening. Thank you.